Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Morning, everybody. We're in a preaching series here at CCM Heaton's on the path of discipleship. Uh, my name's Peter, and I've got self-denial as the subject to talk about today. So it's going to be fun. Um, discipleship is not a word that we use very much in everyday life. Um, you probably only know it from the Bible, more or less. Um, and last week, if you were here, James Adams was preaching, and he introduced us to some modern-day synonyms for disciple that maybe make the idea a bit more kind of familiar. Um, And they include things like follower. We know about followers from, you know, social media uh, and other things. Student, pupil. Um, But perhaps, he said, the the closest modern equivalent might be apprentice. Um, An apprentice being somebody who works with, studies, and learns from a boss who is also a mentor to them. And Jesus' early followers, his earlier disciples, his early apprentices, well, they were the 12 apostles, we know about them. And also people like Mary Magdalene and Zacchaeus and Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and scores of unnamed followers who were also male and female disciples, apprentices, learning from him. Not, not like Alan Sugar style apprentices, quite different, but more like, more like somebody learning a trade. Um, They were studying and copying Jesus and he encouraged them to learn from him. And today, if like me, you call yourself a follower of Jesus, an apprentice of his, then that makes you a spiritual descendant of those original disciples. And we find ourselves swept up in the same awesome mission, the same great calling to follow Jesus wherever he might lead. And today we're looking at one facet of apprenticeship. And that is the idea of self-denial. And right at the outset, I think I need to issue a content warning, really, because it's a powerful bit of Jesus' teaching that we're looking at. And every time I read it, I can feel myself on the inside a little bit kicking and screaming against its meaning because I think I'm a bit scared of its full implications. So, yeah, if what I say this morning doesn't make you feel at least a little bit uncomfortable, then either I'm not doing my job properly or or you're not listening properly. (laughs) And yet, really being uncomfortable isn't, isn't the objective. That's not what this is all about. Because I truly believe that if we dwell on these words of Jesus, if we chew on them, if we understand them, if we talk about them with each other and take them to heart and put them into practice, it will give us the key to living the life that God intends for us. Jesus promises that his way will bring life, life to the full, And strangely enough, self-denial is part of that pattern and part of that way. So let me start by praying. Father God, please would you be here with us working this morning by your Holy Spirit. Please would you be guiding us to think, to dwell, to ponder, to pray, to talk about and to respond to what you have to say to us this morning. Amen. Amen. Let's go. If you've got a Bible with you, please open it up to the book of Luke chapter 9. Verse 23. And if you don't, then the words are going to appear on the screen. So, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then Jesus said to all his followers, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? These are pretty strange things to say to your followers, aren't they? Take up your cross means to be paraded through town carrying an instrument of your own torture and execution. And I'm just trying to imagine next year we're going to have an election probably. And I'm imagining Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer popping a leaflet through your letterbox that says that with me in charge, every day is going to feel like walking to the gallows. (laughs) I don't think it's going to win very many votes. They're strong words. And verse 24 is even more extreme. The English translations are weak. The word that we see as lose is a very English euphemism. In Greek, the word is apolemy, which is stronger. Here's a definition I found in a New Testament Greek dictionary. Apolemy means violently or completely perish, implies permanent absolute destruction, to cancel out, to die, ruin, destruction, utterly perish, experience a miserable end. It's the word that gets used in the Bible when Herod sends his soldiers out because he's hoping to lose baby Jesus. And there's an angel in Revelation who's called Apollyon, the destroyer, who in my head looks a little bit like Sir Killalot from Robot Wars. (laughs) So, I mean, (laughs) there's a degree of metaphor in this verse, and I get why the translators chose to use the word lose, but I reckon it loses a certain something uh, in translation. So verse verse 24 and verse 23, we've got ourselves a paradox. If you want to save your own life, it's going to be violently destroyed. But if you're happy and willing to violently destroy your own life for Jesus, well, ironically, it'll end up saved. It's a tricky saying, for sure. But why should we take it seriously? And what does it mean for us today? Here's the plan for the next 15, 20 minutes. We're going to start off by thinking about what this teaching meant for Jesus. And then we'll have a look at what it meant for the original hearers, the disciples. And then hopefully that'll help us work out what it means for us today. So let's think about Jesus. Because this teaching wasn't wasn't abstract for Jesus. It wasn't theory. He wasn't like an ivory ivory tower Instagram influencer taking fake photos and dishing out hypocritical advice for likes and follows. No, this was Jesus's pattern of life. It was the example that he set. It was how he lived every single day. So the first reason that we should take this teaching seriously and deny ourselves is it's because what Jesus did. Let's look at two moments from his ministry in a bit more detail. One at the start and one at the end. And there are two moments when Jesus faced real temptation. And each time he chose not to save his life, but to lose it. First of all, Luke chapter 4, a few, a few pages before, if you're in a Bible. Luke's in the middle of nowhere. He's in the wilderness. He's in the desert. He's there for 40 days. And we're told that the devil tempts him with three things. Food, because Jesus is fasting, so he's gone very, very hungry. And the devil tempts him to conjure up some bread. Power and riches. He shows, the devil shows Jesus the, kingdom of, the kingdoms of the world and says he'll give them all. He'll give Jesus all their authority and splendor. If he worships worships the devil. And then ego. He says, go on, jump off that temple. You know it's not going to hurt you. The angels will catch you. Show off a little. And then 
if we skip to the end of Luke's gospel, we get to the Garden of, Geth- Garden of Gethsemane and the night that Jesus is betrayed to the Roman authorities. We find Jesus enthusiastically praying, asking God if there might be a plan B that doesn't involve being crucified tomorrow. And that, in the garden, is Jesus' last chance to back out. But of course, he doesn't. He chooses to go through with it. These are genuine choices that Jesus faces in the wilderness and in Gethsemane. And in all his choices, one option looks like saving his life, and the other looks like losing it. For Jesus, losing his life looked like depriving himself in order to spend quality time with God. He went without food to focus his mind. Throughout the gospel stories, we find him finding lonely places to pray, often going into quite a lot of effort to do so, getting up super early in the morning, doing whatever it took to prioritize the close personal relationship with his father that he knew he needed, even or even especially in the midst of his hectic schedule. It looked like depriving himself of the riches that were rightfully his. He preferred to trust that God would provide what he actually needed. And it looked like depriving himself of recognition. Instead of having angels and men serve him and enjoying the glorious status that, again, he deserved during his time on earth, he chose instead to serve the people around him at every opportunity. And on this recognition point, sometimes we forget that Jesus, he chose to spend over a decade of his life working as the village carpenter for a rural community in Judea. That's the creator of the universe, the guy who designed the Grand Canyon or Mars or the duck-billed platypus. He designed all of those things. And then he spent years of his life making stools and trestle tables for all of his neighbours. Jesus really knew the meaning of self-denial. That wasn't his full potential. I'm sure he did a great job. And ultimately, of course, for Jesus, denying himself meant going willingly to a horrific execution. He was executed by the Roman authorities for a crime he didn't commit. His life was violently destroyed. And yet he submitted himself to that fate out of a love for God and love for us. Because he knew that it was the only way that we could be saved and spend eternity with him. So yeah, if we go back to the passage in Luke chapter 9, deny himself, yes, check, Jesus did that. Take up his cross again, I think that's pretty well covered, literally. Uh, And lose his life for sure. So Jesus knew exactly what he was asking his disciples. And he knew it was going to be hard. But he also knew that it was going to be worth it. And it was something that he was up for doing himself. And today he still knows. He knows what it is he's asking of you. He knows what, he is, what it is he's asking of me. And he promises that it's doable. He promises that he's going to be with us. And he promises that it's going to be really, really worth it. So it's time to start asking ourselves, well, what is that something? What is he asking? What, what might I need to deny myself? It might be something good. In fact, it probably is something good. Look at the things that Jesus gave up. Food, comfort, money, influence, recognition, life itself. Those are all good things. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been temptations at all for Jesus. So we need to ask, is there anything getting in the way of my spending quality time with God? Is there anything that's preventing me from trusting God's plan for my life? Is there anything preventing me from loving and serving the people around me? Would I really be willing to die for my faith? I hope those are hard questions. They certainly are for me.
But okay, I'm not Jesus. You're not Jesus. <laughs> there are some great principles in Jesus' life, but the parallels are not exact. Unimaginable riches are probably not on offer for us. And nor is there likely to be any imminent opportunity for anyone in this room to die for the sins of the universe. So let's change the camera angle and zoom in instead on the people that Jesus was originally speaking to. So that's Peter, James, John, and the rest of the disciples. And that takes us on to our second point, which is we should deny ourselves because God has plans. God has plans for us. Now, at this point in Luke's narrative, pretty much everything I've said about Jesus would still have been news to Peter, James, and John. They didn't really have a clue. They've been following Jesus around. They've seen some amazing things. They've seen crowds. They've seen miracles. They've seen healings. But they're still clutching at straws trying to work out what any of it means. And now, finally, they're just starting to figure it out. So we've just had a dramatic moment. It's a bit like MJ realizing that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Peter has identified Jesus as God's Christ, his chosen king. And we as kind of 21st century readers go, aha, you got it, Peter. But I think Jesus would have said, not so fast. We've got to talk about this because Peter, James and John, like all of the Jews of the time, they'd have had a very specific thing in mind when they thought about the Christ, the Messiah. They thought there was a clear job description and they were associating it with Jesus. They thought he was going to lead a Jewish army and smash the Romans and establish Jerusalem as the kind of the new Rome, the capital of the known world. They thought that God's king would be like a Jewish Alexander the Great, this sort of parading hero. And well, think about it. If Jesus was Alexander the Great, if Jesus is Alexander the Great, then he's going to need generals. He's going to need governors. He's going to need a privy council. He's going to need a chief of staff. I bet Judas was kind of looking, going, he's going to need a chancellor of the exchequer. And that's me. And who better for these roles than Jesus' closest friends and his earliest apprentices? And it, we, we know what we know now. It kind of sounds a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? But this is literally what they were expecting was going to happen. We know it because James and John, in all seriousness, go on to ask Jesus, can we be your deputies? This is what they thought was going to happen, and the prospect was really exciting to them. And that's why Jesus switches tack so quickly and starts talking about self-denial, starts talking about suffering, starts talking about the way of the cross and losing one's life. Because Peter, James, John, and the others have an awful lot of unlearning to do before they can realize who Jesus is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. But, of course, they were half right, weren't they? Jesus was God's chosen king. He did have special jobs for them as his closest friends and earliest apprentices. Take Simon the Rock Peter, who was renamed by Jesus to become the foundation of the church that we're a part of now. It's all built on Peter's life and ministry. Jesus had amazing plans for Peter. On the day of Pentecost, he would see the physical manifestation of the Spirit of God come in like tongues of fire and fill the room. He'd see healings and amazing miracles. There was the beggar in Jerusalem who Peter would heal by the power of that same Spirit working through him. The lives that Peter would change. We know that one day he preached a short, kind of 10-minute sermon. I've probably already spoken for more than 10 minutes. 
And 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus, which would be quite impressive in this room. (laughs) Peter was right at the heart of that movement as the Spirit of God rushed through the city. And he saw angels. There was an angelic visitation. The time Peter was busted out of prison by a literal angel who made his shackles fall off. Incredible things that would happen. And if you believe the traditions, and I don't see any good reason not to, he'd end up travelling to Rome, the centre of the world at the time, and becoming the first bishop. And finally, and probably best of all, he would eventually have a tram stop named after him. (laughs) These were God's plans for Peter. But at that moment in time, I reckon Peter had other plans for Peter. I can't say exactly what, but here's my best guess. He's he's already given up on um, fish. That was probably his first plan, was to catch loads of fish. But uh, he's, he's already given that arm up for Jesus. So he wants to become a someone in Jesus' regime. That's my best guess. I don't know what his plans were, but they weren't. They didn't involve tram stops. Peter really needed to hear these words of Jesus'. He was all set to take a swing at that left-hand column. And if he tried, he'd have missed and he'd have missed out on everything in the right column at the same time. And that means no tram stop. For Peter, it all came to a head in one moment. After Jesus was arrested, Peter went shifting around the chief priest's palace court in the cold to do some snooping. And he was asked to his face, are you an apprentice of Jesus? And in that moment, he had two choices. He could align himself with Jesus, admit his association with the newly shamed outcast. It would risk jettisoning his reputation. He'd even risk arrest himself. He didn't really know what was going to happen. Risk, self-denial. Or he could save his life, maintain his reputation, give up on the whole Jesus thing and carry on on his own. And you know what he chose? Yeah, the second option. (laughs) He denied Jesus and chose to save himself. But God was really gracious, and so he gave Peter a second chance. But it was the same outcome. He chose to deny Jesus again. And then God was still gracious and gave Peter a third chance. And yet he still chose to put himself first and deny Jesus. And I think we can probably relate to Peter, can't we? Have you been in a situation where you know what it is that God wants you to do, but it's going to take bravery? and sacrifice on your part and you can't bring yourself to take that risk maybe it's a small way maybe it's speaking up in a conversation to offer a godly perspective even though you know that it's going to cut against the grain and might make you feel uncomfortable or maybe it's something huge maybe it's a situation that you're still in maybe it's something you can't quite admit to yourself maybe you've got a hunch that god wants you to learn russian and head for siberia maybe you think that God's calling you to quit your career and start something entirely new and potentially financially disastrous, but through which God's going to work. Or it's a sense that you need to get back in touch with a long estranged relative or say you're sorry to someone that you know you hurt a long time ago or forgive someone who hurt you a long time ago. And if it's one of those huge things, I can't say I blame you for putting your hands over your ears and telling God you're not listening because that's an entirely natural reaction. Like Peter, I know we all have examples of times we've ignored God and chosen our own comfort, convenience, security and reputation over following his call. And that's why I think 
Peter's story is such an encouraging one to focus on. Because even after giving him three chances, God didn't give up on him. He was still gracious to Peter. And it, it was only through that experience in the high priest's court that Peter learnt what it really means to lose his life for Jesus and the gospel. And afterwards, after he meets the risen Jesus and after he's filled with the Spirit, the Peter that we read about in Acts is a changed man. He's still an apprentice of Jesus, but now he really knows what that means. He chooses to stand up and be counted as a believer, even when he knows it's going to get him in trouble. He chooses to take risks and be led by the prompting of the Spirit. He chooses to deny himself taking up that metaphorical cross every single day and going where God led him. And then one day, those choices did eventually lead to his condemnation and taking up a real, literal cross, again, according to tradition. And his life was violently destroyed. Peter needed to hear this teaching of Jesus because it was going to be literally true for him in the same way that it was literally true for Jesus. And the same for most of the other disciples who were either executed or murdered. Peter, James, John and the others are now with Jesus in glory. The pain, the suffering, the hardship, that's all over for them. Jesus has saved them. They're free. They have gained the whole world. So, it's going to be slightly different for us, obviously. We're mostly very unlikely to be killed for our faith. It's not impossible. Some of us have got links to parts of the world where believers are being killed every single day. But it's very unlikely to happen in Heaton Moor. In some ways, we have less to lose than the disciples. But in other ways, maybe we've got more to lose. We've got more money, more security, more demands on our time, more friends, more skills to acquire, more leisure activities, more, our, our, our culture encourages us to do more work, get more possessions, be more organised, have more ambition, more, 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 more. And if we're not careful, we, we come to church on a Sunday and we, we think it's more of the same. We need to be more pious, we need to serve in more ways, we need to encourage more people, get more stuck in, and we just lift that same culture of more, 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 and we apply it to our faith, and then we act all surprised when it makes us jaded and burnt out. And that's why I think we need to urgently get hold of these verses and let them permeate our hearts, our souls, and our imaginations. Because the way of Jesus is different. Being an apprentice, following his way, it should look different. And we shouldn't be ashamed to be different. Jesus was the most complete human to ever live, our perfect model. And as far as we know, he never owned a house. He never played the guitar. He never scored a free kick. He never went to Lanzarote. He never got a promotion. He never took out life insurance. He never had sex. He never bought a book entitled 500 Things to Do Before You Die. And he never ate at a Michelin-starred restaurant. <laughs> so as Jesus' disciples then, maybe we need to be willing to embrace less, less, less instead of more and more, more. Emptier diaries, but deeper connections. Lower bank balances, but more treasure in heaven. Less knowledge about current affairs, but more in touch with what the Spirit is doing around us. 
Jesus is talking about a complete paradigm shift in how we live. And I'll be honest, I don't think I've cracked this. I don't think my way of life is completely different. There are some examples for me, uh, mostly in terms of money and status. There are career options that I've had but haven't considered or pursued because I perceive that for me personally, it'd be hard to combine a job like that with living for Jesus. And also there's cash. We give plenty of money away to various causes each month and that does make some difference to how we live. And in the last couple of years, Becky and I have consistently chosen to prioritise more time over more money. So a couple of weeks ago, I dropped down to four days of work a week, which obviously means a pay cut and potentially limits my career options. Uh, And I'm hoping to go down to three eventually. But I hope that that is going to give me more energy to be a better apprentice for Jesus right here and now. I think there are some of us here who are in a lucky position because as I've been speaking, you know exactly what it is that God is calling you to deny yourself. It's maybe been going through your head for about 15 minutes now, whether you wanted it to or not. And so you might not feel very lucky because you might not want to do it, but I think you are. But I think more of us are still thinking, what, what should I do? And I'm more in that second boat. So I'll tell you my plan. And I'm not saying it should be your plan, but this is what I'm going to do. Because there is one small thing I'm going to try and do differently this week. Because these words of Jesus are ancient, right? And over thousands of years, generations of followers of Jesus have been developing and improving a practice, a habit, that is specifically designed to help us honour Jesus' call to deny ourselves and follow him and take up our crosses daily. And it just happens to start this Wednesday... Uh, And I don't think that's a coincidence. It's called Lent. I've never taken Lent seriously. Never. I was brought up in a Christianity that wants to celebrate freedom in Christ and the spontaneity of the spirit. And is very suspicious of rules and ritual and habit. Sees them as boring. And so I guess I saw giving things up for Lent as a bit of a staid, quaint, old-fashioned, well-meaning, but sort of fuddy-duddy thing to do. Um, but what if I've been wrong? What if it's, what if it's a gift from God for us? What if I've been throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Here's my thinking. What if by making a small, tangible, physical change to my lifestyle just for a few weeks, it'll make that massive, intangible, spiritual change to my lifestyle that following Jesus represents that much more real for me? Or to put it another way, what if Lent is a bit like cleaning your teeth? I'm a fully grown adult. Nobody's going to make me clean my teeth. And I'm totally free to go to bed without doing it. But like, why would I not clean my teeth? (laughs) My teeth will end up falling out and smelling and they'll be gross. And yeah, cleaning my teeth is good for me. So this year I'm going to try Lent. Um, Maybe not, maybe just in a small way. My aim is to do one day a week between now and Easter fasting and I'll pick a day I'll go to the office and that way I can take my lunch break as a prayer break instead. And luckily there is a purpose-built facility just around the corner from my office. It's called Manchester Cathedral. So I can go there and pray. That's my plan. It's just a small plan. But please pray that God meets me in it and blesses me through it. I can't tell you what your plan needs to be. 
But um, Jamie's going to come up, and in a moment he's going to lead us in worship and a chance to reflect and respond to God. And please keep thinking. Please keep chewing on these words and trying to work out what your plan needs to be. While he's getting set up, I'm going to reread them one more time, and then I'm going to pray. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very self?